We are in part two of our four-part series called, Is God Really There? The song that we just sang testified to the fact that he is. And so today we are going to be looking at another argument or another proof, if you will, for the existence of God, the ways that we can have confidence for what we believe. And you may remember last week we talked about Peter's words. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Jonathan probably knows this verse. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with what? Gentleness. With gentleness and respect. And we're getting there a little bit. Keep talking. And so Peter encourages Christians to know why we have hope. To know why we have hope, why we believe, and to be prepared with those things. That that's the heart of this series. How can we be prepared to give reasons for why we believe God is not just some pie in the sky fairy tale, but he's an actual living being. He's an actual person. And so last week, we looked at God as the uncaused first cause of all that is. In other words, that the only reason that anything exists in our world is because something causes it to exist. But that can't go on forever and ever and ever. There had to be something that was necessary. There had to be something that was uncaused. And we know that thing or that person to be who, church? God. Let's say that a little louder. God, right? And that's exactly what God says about himself. As the song we just sang says, he calls himself I am. It's a statement of eternality. He's saying I was, I am, I will be. That's what, what God says about himself when he says, I am. In Revelation, he says he's the God who, who was, who is, and who is to come. God is the uncaused first cause. And so as we get started this morning, we have an opportunity to speak to that very same God. The very same God who spoke to Abraham. The very same God who spoke to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and Noah and all these different people that we read about in Scripture. And so we have a chance to approach his throne with, with grace and with reverence. And I want to encourage us to do that today. Let me ask you this. When you go to a wedding and the bride enters the room, what do we do? And when we go before the president and the president walks in the room, what do we do? And when we go to England and we, get, we sit, go before the queen or the king, what do people do? So when the God of heaven fills this room with his Holy Spirit, what do you think we should do, church? We're going to pray right now, and if you're visiting with us, one of the things I'd like to encourage us all to do is to approach the throne of God with reverence. It's a chance for us to lift hands, to get down on bended knee, to stand up, whatever it is you feel called to do, but place yourself in a place of, of reverence and a posture of, of respect toward God. And I invite you to do that as we go to God in a word of prayer. Most righteous and heavenly Father, we, we, we just approach your throne with respect and grace. Father, we thank you for your grace. With your, without your grace, Lord, we couldn't stand here. But you, as we talked about in communion, Lord, you just you, you break your body and you shed your blood so that we could have life. Father, you, you extend grace to us even though we don't deserve it, Father. And I just want to thank you. I want to praise you. This morning, as we, as we think about who you are and what you've done, 
and how, how great your greatness is and how big your bigness is and how loving your, your lovingness is. Father, I pray that you would begin to tear down barriers in our hearts, that you would, you would take the, the shields from our eyes and the things that, that cause us not to hear. Father, help us to be transformed by your word and, and by the, the, the creation that surrounds us so that we can see your glory, we can see your majesty, we can see your bigness. Father, you are an almighty, infinitely big, amazing God. And you deserve all reverence. You deserve all praise and all glory. And Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts right now for that, Father. I pray that as we we listen to your word and as we listen to all this stuff about you, we think about you, Lord, that we would would cast aside the the things that distract us, the chores that we have to do right now, the chores that we have to do later. Help us to be fully present right here in this moment to think about you, to give all of our attention to you in worship of you, Father, because you deserve it. You are that big and that great. And we want to praise you and give you honor. We pray all this, church, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I want to... Okay, they cut out. Um, So Audrey and Andrew, I'm going to have you guys come up. I was going to try to incorporate a little guy over here who was visiting with us. Audrey, you want to come up real quick? Just real quick. And then you get to go back and sit down. Come on, Andrew. So, here's the deal, guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you back up here in just a little bit, and we're going to talk some more. But in this bag are a bunch of Legos, and you're not allowed to open it. Okay, so what I want you to do for the next 10 minutes or whatever is just move the bag around. So I'm going to have you guys go in the back so it's not super distracting. But you guys can take turns as you get tired. I just want you to move the bag around, okay? Just deal. So you can go stand by Nathaniel, move the bag around. As you get tired, give it to Andrew. As he gets tired, give it back to you. And then I'll bring you guys back up here in just a little bit. Um, we can go forward a, a slide here. A, a few years ago, uh, right as they were starting to kind of take off in popularity, I, I happened to find myself the owner of a brand new DJI Phantom 3 4K drone. Uh, you've probably seen these things flying around from time to time, although less so because the laws continue to, to pile on and they're almost impossible to fly illegally now. But I, as I got it, I was excited about the possibilities. You know, I was thinking like, what could I record? What could I capture with this ability to fly seemingly anywhere with this amazing 4K video camera attached to the underside of this thing? Like I could get video um, that I only see in movies, that we only see from expensive helicopters. And so I was excited to put it to good use. And so when it finally arrived, I, I kind of got excited and I rushed and I charged the batteries and I, I waited impatiently for them to charge up so that I could go and try this new toy out. And so in the meantime, I was reading up and, and watching tutorials and doing all that I needed to do to learn how to fly this thing. And I, I felt ready to go. So I took it outside, I started it up, I took off and I flew around and it was fun. It was a blast to play with this thing. But then I rushed inside and I took my memory card out of it and I put it in my computer so I could see how awesome my new video was. And the video was terrible. It was, it was awful. Not because of anything that was wrong with the, the quality of the camera. The, the camera was great. It was my flying skills that I realized were, were terrible, right? And so what that helped me realize was that uh, good drone video requires good piloting as well. And so I thought, hey, if I just get better at flying this thing, then I will start to have some good video. So I worked on becoming a better pilot. 
And, and I did, and the video got a little bit better, but it was still pretty awful. And it seemed like no matter how hard I tried, I, I just couldn't get that crystal clear, super smooth video that all of us sort of covet and crave uh, as drone owners. And so I started to dig around and figure out like what I could do about it. How could I improve the video quality? And I discovered this thing called autonomous flying. I don't know if you guys know what autonomous flying is, but I downloaded this new app on my phone and I learned how to use it. And so basically I, I programmed the route, I programmed the speed, I programmed the height, I programmed where I wanted the camera to point at any given time. And I set the thing up, I turned it on and I, and I set it loose. And suddenly I watched in amazement as my drone sort of started up on its own, took off on its own, went up 200 feet on its own, kind of like situated itself, turned for a second and then took off 25 miles an hour uh, on this pre-programmed route that I had for it. And I lost sight of it. I didn't know where it went. It was a really stressful five minutes. But five minutes later, this thing came flying back and it stopped above my head and it started to descend ever so slowly and it landed without meeting, me needing to do anything. Like it was, it was creepy and it was uncomfortable to take this expensive toy and watch it do everything on its own. But actually watching it do it was kind of a beautiful sight. And so, I took the memory card out again, I went inside, and this time when I watched the footage, the video was breathtaking. And so that was when I learned that the key to great footage with my drone had very little to do, I guess we're not showing the video, I actually have some real drone video footage that's supposed to be playing behind me right now, but it's not working, so maybe it'll pop, pop, pop up here in a moment. But that was when I learned that the, the key to great footage with my drone had very little to do with my flying skills and everything to do with my programming skills. That, that my drone needed something more than my herky-jerky motions and changes of directions that on a whim, it needed a plan. It needed a design. And that design needed to be done with thought and with intelligence rather than just something random or by chance. And I'm curious, when you stop and you look at the world around you, what do you see? What do you see? Yeah. Do you see a world or a universe that looks like it happened randomly by chance, which is chaos to some degree? Or do you see a world that was formed with thought and with intelligence? That was the question that people like Plato and Aristotle first began to ask themselves hundreds of years before Christ ever walked the face of the earth. Don't worry too much about the video. If it's not working, it's not a big deal. It's a really pretty drone video. Just pretend you're watching that. Um, but Plato and Aristotle began to ask this question hundreds of years before Christ. And so Plato specifically said that there were two things that would lead a person to believe in what he called the gods. Number one, he said, was the argument based on the soul. And number two was the argument from the order of the motion of the stars and of all things under the dominion of the mind which ordered the universe. And so right here you have two of these notable minds, right? We think of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and the kind of influence they've had uh, throughout thinking over the last couple thousand years. And two of the most notable minds in the history of the world are looking around and they're seeing such complexity that they couldn't help but marvel and at the very least concede that the wonderful order that they saw reflected something. It reflected something purposeful. It did not reflect something accidental. And so 1800 years later, a guy comes along. Uh, we talked about him a little bit last week. His name was Thomas Aquinas. 
And he begins to formulate what would later become known as the teleological argument for the existence of God. Uh, and teleological is just a, a big word that, that means uh, directed towards some goal, that there's a means to an end. And, and when Aquinas looked at the world and the heavens around him, he said, you know, we see how things like natural bodies work for an end, even though they have no knowledge. The fact that they nearly always operate in the same way and so as to achieve the maximum good makes this obvious and shows that they attain their end by design, not by chance. Now things which have no knowledge tend towards an end only through the agency of something which knows and also understands. And what Aquinas is beginning to say, or what he's going to do next, is he's going to look at how an arrow is shot from a bow. That in essence, the reason the arrow goes where it's supposed to go is because there is an intelligent being who directed it there. Everyone following along with me? The reason the arrow goes where it's supposed to go is because something intelligent is directing it there. And what I found with my drone what was kind of the same thing, that by itself, the drone was fully incapable of providing anything beautiful. It was fully incapable of providing anything meaningful or anything noteworthy in the form of video. But once I learned how to give it intelligent design, suddenly the results were breathtaking. And so that's what Aquinas is saying when he uses a term like teleological. He's saying that the universe was clearly directed towards some goal in mind by something who intelligently designed it to do so. And so Aquinas, as notable as he is, he's not the name that I want you to know for this particular proof or this particular argument, because what, what, he, what he began became so much more notable by a man who came about 500 plus years later. It's a man by the name of William Paley. And, and what Paley said, well, I, for the last several minutes, Andrew and, and uh, Audrey back there have been moving these Legos around in a bag, right? And they're taking turns as they get tired. And, and what they're doing is largely based on contributions that came from William Paley. In 1804, Paley wrote this piece called Natural Theology. And what he basically said was this. He says, you know, suppose I was walking along and I just sort of came across a stone that was laying on the ground. And you came up to me and you asked me, like, hey, where did that stone come from? He'd say, well, you know, for, for all I know, that, that stone has been there forever. Like, I don't know. It's just, it could have just been there forever. And that would be a reasonable thing to say. But Paley says, okay, suppose, same scenario. I'm walking along and I came across a watch laying on the ground. And this time you came up to me and you asked me, hey, how did that watch get to be there? He says, it would be absurd for me to give the same answer. I would never assume that the watch had been there forever. And so Paley wonders why it would be different for the watch than it was for the stone. And he describes the reason this way. He says, when we come to inspect the watch, we perceive what we could not discover in the stone, that its several parts are framed and put together for a purpose. They're put together for a purpose. And he goes on to describe the different components in the watch. He says there's these various gears and these various wheels of different sizes and springs that are made of steel because of their elasticity. And the gears are made of, of brass because of their resistance to rust. And he talks about the glass that forms the face of the watch and, and the, the metal frame, if you will, that encompasses it all. And, and, and he goes on and on with all these different components of a watch. And then he concludes with an inference. He says, you know, upon looking at all of this, we have no choice but to conclude that there must be a maker. 
that at one time or another, this thing was formed for a purpose, and it was intelligently designed to do its job. That's what we conclude when we looked at the watch. And so as Paley is gazing upon the watch and having these thoughts, like he's living in the midst of the Industrial Revolution in England, 19th century, and Paley's seeing the advancement of machinery. He's seeing mechanics all around him. And he's saying, you know, this universe that we live in isn't altogether unlike these watches and these machines that we're all designing and building around us. And so just as all these have a maker, he's going, hey, wouldn't it be re reasonable for us to assume that the universe has a maker as well. And so I'm gonna go ahead and stop moving the Legos around. Go ahead and come on up to the front. One or both of you, I don't care if, if, if all of you come. No, actually, I do want both of you to come. So I want you to come up here real quick. So yeah, you can go ahead and advance the slide. So if you look behind you, you have all the Legos in that bag to make you know, some crude version of the San Francisco skyline out of Legos. And I want to ask you, did you succeed in making the model that is pictured? Like if you open the bag right now, are you going to find that? You want to open it up and find out, right? You did not succeed. You did not succeed. Here, go ahead and hold this one. Okay. So you did, you did not succeed in making what is pictured. Now, how long do you think you would need to shake that bag in order for you to eventually end up with exactly that model right there? A thousand years. A thousand years? <laughs> Audrey, do you have any guesses? If you shake it long enough, do you think eventually you'll end up with, with that model? No? Not even in a thousand years? If you guys took turns for a thousand years, I mean, that'd be in impressive for one, but would it, would it actually work? Could you eventually do it if you were given enough time? Just by shaking things around? No. So let me ask you this. What's missing? Like you have all the right pieces to build that. So why weren't you able to make it? What's missing from that process? I don't know. You don't know? Audrey, what do you think? What, what would it take for you to take those pieces and make that? Uh, not the building. Building? Okay. We're getting somewhere. What about you, Audrey? Anyone want to help them out? Instructions. Design. Instructions. Design. 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 Someone willing to do it. Someone willing to do it. I mean, why, why doesn't it just work to just jumble these around? All right, guys, you, you guys are done. Give them a round of applause. Now, I know I'm asking these questions, and I know these are dumb questions. They are. They're dumb questions because they're, they're questions we already know the answer to. But if I take anything that is designed, if I, if I take anything that is complex, and I, and I put it in an environment to form purely through chance, like, is it ever actually going to work? No. It doesn't work. If I took all the parts from a watch, and I put it in a concrete mixer, and I turned it on for a thousand years, would we ever get a watch out of that concrete mixer? No, we wouldn't. What if I took a million watches and I put them in a million concrete mixers and I turned them on for a million years? Would I get one functional watch? Why? Think about that. 
And that's the point. It, it takes a, a level of intelligence. It takes design. It takes purpose. It takes someone to build it, to actually put it together, to order all the components into a working system. And the universe that we live in is, without a doubt, a working system. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be here. It is a working system. And so it's important to know that the, the teleological argument, like all arguments, it has its critics, it has its detractors, and most notably is a guy by the name of David Hume. A lot of people think that David Hume wrote uh, to respond to William Paley, but Hume actually was 30 years prior. And what Hume basically did was extrapolate on what I just said about watches and concrete mixtures. He said essentially, you know, it is possible for the universe to form by chance if certain conditions are met. He says, hey, if the universe is eternal, and if there are infinite chances within that universe, then he says eventually every possibility that could happen will happen. Once the combinations are realized, they're just going to keep going. So he's, he's saying, yeah, give them enough chances, eventually it'll work out. If you give them infinite watches and infinite concrete mixers, and you turn them on for eternity, an infinite amount of time, he says, then you will eventually end up with a working watch. Do you agree with him? Yeah. No. I think we all have to recognize that the, the, the silliness of that statement. There's a guy by the name of William of Ockham. Have you ever heard of Ockham's razor? Raise your hand, Occam's razor, ring a bell, yeah. So Occam's razor is a line of reasoning that says if there are two possible explanations for something, the simplest one is usually the correct one. And so if you apply his razor here, you're presented with two options. Number one, the universe is complex in the same way that other things are complex. And so it probably has a maker, just like other complex things have a maker. Or number two, second option, there are infinite universes existing within an infinite amount of time. And out of that, that lottery, if you will, emerged one winning universe, and we happen to live in it. Which of those makes more sense, according to Occam's razor? Which of those is simplest? Which of those is most plausible to you? And I'm going to leave that there for you to decide on, although I, I suspect we're probably all on the same page here. But I want you to, to just consider for a moment, just to sort of humor me, uh, that maybe the universe is a complex system, that maybe it might have actually been created. And so in 1973, there's this guy by the name of uh, Brandon Carter. He's an Australian physicist, and he coins a phrase that's used for the first time in 73 and has, has become a lot more commonly used today. And it, that phrase takes a, a deeper look at the complex system that surrounds us. He calls it the anthropic principle, the anthropic principle. And what the anthropic principle basically states is that we live in a finely tuned universe. That if one little thing here or there uh, was just a little bit different, then life as we know it would sort of cease to be possible. It would utterly collapse and fall apart. And so it brings back a memory. When I was uh, in school in Oklahoma, I, uh, as a lot of us are going to do today, after church, me and, and some of my closest friends, we went out for, for lunch, and there was probably like a dozen of us. It was a pretty big group. We went to this little noodle place called Nothing But Noodles, and uh, while I was there, you know, everyone had long since finished eating, long, fished, long since finished drinking. And so there were all these cups on the table as people were just hanging out talking. And I guess I wasn't talking much to the rest of the group. But I started to notice something, that on the bottom of the cups, there were these little cutouts. And you could sort of like take the cup and rest it on the rim of another cup. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I, I tried it out and I put it on there and it worked. And I thought, huh, this must be purposeful. This must be designed. So I took a second cup and I put it on top of the first one. And I took a third cup and I put it on top of the first one. 
and now I have this like stack of four cups. I'm thinking, oh, this is like, I guess if you're if you're lacking hands or whatever, and you need to be able to to carry four drinks at once, that's what this is designed for. So I grab a fifth cup and I, I started a, a third tier, if you will, on this on this whole structure. And by then my friends are starting to, to take note of what I'm building and they think I'm a lunatic for what I'm doing. But I assure them, no, 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 I have a background in architecture. That means I can, I'm, I can structurally make this stand up. So I grab a sixth cup and a seventh cup and an eighth cup and they go on about their business. By the time I get to about cup number 10, they come back to me and they go, man, you are really, really asking for it here, Josh. No, 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 I'm fine. 11th cup, 12th cup. And before I know it, I have this cascading giant thing of cups. And you're never going to guess what happened next. That, that stack of cups that was supposed to be really, really strong, not so strong. And I'm thankful as I look back that it didn't fall on any of my friends. That would have been a really, really rough awakening for them. However, it did fall on me. It, fall, it fell all over me, just all over my lap. I was drenched from head to toe in people's half-drink soda water and tea water and ice and everything else. And uh, I, I watched in horror as the entire restaurant, uh, at one simultaneous moment, turned their attention to me to gasp at what had just happened. I had just dumped 12 or 13 cups of liquid all over myself. And we immediately left and I went and changed. And I had to deal with the shame for years that I'm still dealing with today. But you know, I look back on that and, and to me at the time, like the conditions were perfect. I was gonna create this, this balanced, robust system of half empty cups of soda. And uh, if it was a strong structure, it would have been fine but it wasn't, and it collapsed all over me. And that's kind of what the anthropic principle uh, invites us to consider. Or to put it another way, suppose we all leave here, and we drive over to Ocean Beach, and we, we set out to build the most amazing sandcastle that you've ever feasted your eyes upon. You know, we'd, have had, we'd have access to all the sand we could possibly need. It's all right there for us. And yet, is sand all that you need? Like what sets apart a sandcastle from a sand mound? Design, I mean, I, I can design it in a frame and then pull the frame off and what happens? What, what sets it apart? Water. Yeah, water is, is sort of the glue that makes the sandcastle a sandcastle. It's the, the silent hero that makes the whole thing work together. And the interesting thing about water is you have to have just the right amount of it, right? Too much water and what happens? It becomes just mud and too little water and it just falls apart because there's nothing to sort of bind all that sand together. You have to have just the right amount of water and without it, the whole system collapses. And so I want you to consider some examples about how this plays out in our universe. Number one, and this is just, I'm, I'm gonna give three examples of stuff that we, you know, of many examples that are out there. Number one, strong nuclear force. I don't know if you guys know what strong nuclear force is but it's one of the four basic forces in nature, along with things like electromagnetism and gravity. And what it does is it holds the atomic nuclei together. And so it's strong nuclear force that allows like the hydrogen atom to be the building block for life that it is. It's like those, yeah, I have Legos here. You remember those lame little Lego pieces that are just like one by one blocks? Like nobody really likes using those, but technically like you can build almost anything with those. Like that's what hydrogen is for us. It's like that one little building block that we can build anything else from. 
And so, you know, we, we use hydrogen molecules to form things like carbon that you and I are made out of and to, to form oxygen, that thing that we breathe and to form water, that thing that we, we need to drink to live. And, and it's a strong nuclear force that holds all of that together and allows it to become a new element. And if that force were just 10% weaker, then those nuclei wouldn't fuse. They would just bounce off one another and would be left with a bunch of hydrogen. And without fusion, there would be no sun. There would be no stars. There would be no heat. There would be no light. Uh, in short, we wouldn't be able to survive. And if that force were just 4% stronger, then fusion would happen so quickly that stars would come and they would burn up. They'd burn only for a short time and then they would cease to burn. And again, we'd have no sun or no stars or no heat or no light. And so without a finely tuned, strong nuclear force, life would never exist. It would never work. Number two, protons. Protons and their stability. Um, they're incredibly stable. Neutrons are not stable. They have a half-life of about 10 minutes before they disintegrate into a proton. And so there's like, they're almost exactly the same mass. If you can find the mass of a proton and the mass of a neutron, they're almost exactly the same. Here, the neutron is 939.565 MeV. And I don't expect you to know this. And the proton is 938 and change. So 939, 938, a difference of about 0.1%. But if that weight flipped at all to where the proton was now heavier than the neutron, then the neutron would be stable and the proton would not be stable. And without stable protons, we couldn't have hydrogen, which again is the most basic building block of life. And so we need the proton to be just a little bit lighter than the neutron in order for that to work. Otherwise, we would not be here. Last one, cosmological constant. And this is not to be confused with the cosmological argument. But the cosmological constant tells us how much pull or how much uh, gravity there is in empty space. And our best measurement suggests that, that number is about 10 to the negative 120th. Put it another way, it looks like this. 0. 0.000000, 120 zeros, followed by the number 1. Now here on Earth, if we measure it, that number is about 1. But in empty space, it's very, very close to 0. But here's the thing, if that number had been in slightly negative, then the entire universe would have expanded and collapsed in 10 millionth of a 10 billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. It would have expanded and collapsed that quickly. And if that number had been slightly positive, then the universe would have expanded exponentially and it would double in size every 10 millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. That quick. It would have doubled in size each one of those. And the expansion would have been so fast that even atoms would have been ripped apart. Stephen Barr says, in order for life to be possible then, it appears that the cosmological constant, whether it is positive or negative, must be extremely close to zero. In fact, it must be zero to at least 120 decimal places. This is one of the most precise fine tunings in all of the universe. And so guys, my, my point is this, life doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. It, it is too complex to just happen. Just like Lego sets don't build themselves and watches don't reassemble magically. I think Paley was right to, to look at the complex nature of systems all around us 
and conclude that if I see creation, there must be what? The creator, right? If I see something that looks designed, there might be a designer. Like I said, there's a difference between what happens by chance and what happens through design. And and so those differences are not overcome simply by time and chance. They require a creator. You know, several weeks ago, I I was speaking up at Sierra Bible Camp, and I don't know why it was, but uh, the 4th of July fireworks show at Lake Almanor up there was canceled uh, because there was too much water in the lake, which doesn't even make sense to me. But it was, and so they, they had rescheduled it for Labor Day weekend. And so after I spoke one night, we got a chance to walk down to the lake and kind of watch the fireworks show. It was, it was way far away in the distance, but we had this 15 or 20 minute hike back to camp uh, late at night. As we we're walking back, Peyton was like, Dad, look up at the stars. Like, look how many you can see. Like, isn't it amazing? Like, look up there. Do you see that, that cloudy part? Like, that's the Milky Way. Like, look how amazing that is. And... Uh, you know, it, it's always stunning. It's always stunning when we look up and we get to see the stars like that, where light hasn't washed it all out. I mean, you think about, it's only in the last, you know, a couple hundred years that we've had electricity and light bulbs that, that we don't see this every single night. Because for thousands of years, this was the norm. This is what you looked up in the night sky and you saw every single night. But I, I picture a familiar scene for King David as he sat down and he penned one of his most famous psalms, Psalm 19. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. And no sound is heard from them. And yet their voice goes out into all the earth. And their words to the ends of the earth In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It's like a a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And those words, as beautiful as they are, are not only poetic, but they're prophetic about the grandeur of an almighty creator God when we pause to reflect thy work the, the work thy hands have made. Those are prophetic words. St. Francis of Assisi, the guy after which our, our city is wonderfully named, is uh, often attributed with a quote. He didn't actually say this quote, but it's a great quote nevertheless. The quote is, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, help me out, use words. You know, King David gazes at the heavens here in Psalm 19. He gazes at the work of God's hands and he concludes, no words are necessary. No words are even necessary. The heavens by themselves declare God's glory. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned several weeks ago in a a previous series, the book of Job is often uh, considered to be the oldest book in the Bible. And I want you to see how God speaks to Job. Because at the very end of the, of the book, God corrects Job for, for all the, the wrong thinking that he's been doing. And, and he begins to reveal the order that he placed in all creation. You know, here we read the words of an intelligent designer talking about his design. And he begins to ask Job a series of questions. And he says things like this. He says, where were you 
when I laid the earth's foundation. Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Elsewhere, he says, who shut up the sea behind sea doors or behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its bars, its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. This is Ocean Beach, by the way. He says, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown dawn its place? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. And I just cherry picked a few verses here to illustrate what I'm trying to say. But you need to understand that God speaks like this to Job for three chapters. For three entire chapters, God tells Job and subsequently all of us, I am the watchmaker. I am the watchmaker. For 2,400 years, people have been looking at the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the stars of the heavens, and they've been exclaiming, how great is our God. I say 2,400 years. It's longer than that. Let's be real. But my question for you is, how often do you stop? How often do you stop and just marvel at what's around us? Because I don't stop nearly enough. And yet all around us, is the greatest masterpiece of God. We are part of his finest work. And we are made in his image. That means we are his finest work. Think about that. Point to yourself. Everyone. Janet. Yeah. <laughs> you are his finest work. You are. That deserves an amen. I don't care what you say. Thank you. You know, I love what Louis Giglio had to say. He's, he's got a, a series of videos he likes to do on, on how big and how great God is. He said, you know, we, we can't use rulers or yardsticks or tape measures to see God's bigness. He says, we, we measure things based on how far light travels in a year. For every second, light travels 186,000 miles. It can circle the globe seven and a half times in one second. He says that we measure things based on how far light goes in a year. That's 5.88 billion miles. 
Think about that, 5.88 billion miles. And that is how we measure the bigness of God. We measure God's creation in increments of nearly 6 billion miles. That is a centimeter to God. That is an inch to God, 6 billion miles. And somehow in the vast expanses of God's creation, the Psalms tell us that God determines the number of stars and he calls them by name. Friends, we don't live in a universe that is the result of an impossible accident. We live in a universe that is intelligently designed, a universe that is finely tuned, and a universe that is created and ordered by an almighty God. And that's why we're all living and breathing and sitting here this morning. And the coolest part about all of this is that that is the God who loves you. The God who, who, who measures things in increments of six billion miles is the God who chose to send his son to a cross so that all of us, all of us could live forever. There isn't a single person in this room that deserves to live, and yet he's offered us eternal life. Yeah. Every single one of us. We worship a big God. It takes a God that big to forgive us for all the stuff that's in our hearts and in our minds. It takes a really, really big, mighty, and majestic God. And I want you just to reflect on that. We are all pieces in his glorious watch, and he is the watchmaker. And when you reflect on this message and the hours and days to come, I want you to reflect on that imagery. I want you to remember it in these words, that God is the watchmaker. God is the watchmaker. We're not here by, by happenstance. We're not here by accident. We're here because of creators who do creative things. We are creators ourselves. He practices poetry and rap. She does music. I do whatever I do, not very much. But the whole point is there's a lot of creative people here. Yeah, that's right. Why do we do that, church? We do that because we reflect the God whose image we were made in. He's a big God and he loves us. And we get a chance today to just be still in his presence and marvel at what he has made. You are his finest creation, and we get to praise him for that. God's a big God. Amen. He's an amazing God. That's right. And we're going to go to him again in a word of prayer as we close. Um, we'll sing. And my, my encouragement to all of us is we're going to talk, sing about God's greatness. We're going to sing about the indescribable nature of, of what he's created. <clears throat> sing out. Like, this is not for our glory. It's not for the person next to you who's worried about how you sound. Like, no one cares. This is, we're, we're here to please one person. Who's that? We're here to glorify God. He, he's surrounded us with the beauty of his creation. And we get to sing out to him in a moment. Let's pray and then let's worship. Father, you are, you are bigger than we could possibly imagine. You are greater than we could possibly imagine. Father, you, you, have, you have done so much more than we could ever even begin to fathom or understand. And we just want to give you praise for that this morning. Father, thank you for the way that you've created things. Thank you for the patience you show us as we, we stumble around trying to understand it and figure it out. Lord, we're not going to figure it out. We don't know where you store your hail. And Father, we're not going to figure you out. But you've created us. 
And we believe, Father, that where we see the complexity of this world, that, that we see your handiwork. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to be still today, to take note of the trees, the clouds in the sky, the, the water in the ocean, the, the birds that fly above us, our, our cats and dogs at home, all of the things that we interact with, Father. You've put all of those there to show us and reveal your glory. And Father, help us to take note of one another, to love one another uh, as you would have us because you created all of us in your image. And there's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of, a lot of anger in this world. But Father, when we stop and we marvel at what, what you've made and how you've breathed the, the breath of life into our nostrils, Father, we can't help but marvel at who each of us is. We reflect you, Father. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.